Thank you for tuning in to the Diary of an Addict. Today we have uh, Kane Lambert coming on here to sh- share his story of his battle with alcoholism with us. Um, it's kind of crazy, but uh, this is actually my first conversation with Kane that I can remember. Yeah, I don't know if I've had one before with you or not, but he's actually my first cousin. His dad and my dad are brothers, so... Um, it's pretty special for me, um, I think, because a lot of his story, I feel like, is going to be relatable to mine because we share the same gene pool. And as I went further and further on my journey in recovery and healing, I found out that, you know, genetics does pay, play a big role in, you know, the severity or the quickness or the the likelihood in which somebody will become addicted uh, has a lot to do with their parents, you know. So uh, thank you for coming on here, Kane. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, Let's just get right to it, Kane. Uh, Can you tell us, the listeners, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, what race you are? Uh, Did you have both parents growing up? Uh, did they drink or did they do drugs? And if so, did you ever see them? Yeah, I'm from I'm from here, uh, from Birdtown community. Uh, I had both my parents growing up for I'd say till I was probably like nine or ten, and they divorced. Um, yeah, my mom and my dad they both drank. Uh, I never seen them do drugs or nothing like that, but uh, most everybody in my family drank. I've, uh, I, I always tell people this too. Um, when I was younger coming up, you know, when I, when I'd see people drinking and stuff, it wasn't never like, no, I mean, every once in a while, you know, you'd see fights break out or somebody get rowdy, you know, but like everyone was drinking. So I just thought that that was kind of like a rite of passage, something that you did, you know, when you were an adult, you know, like how us kids were, at the time, playing tag, playing football outside, you know, I thought that's what adults did for fun. What did you, was it like that for you also, or? Oh, yeah, no, I thought uh, drinking was so normalized and not just through my parents, but just their friends and uh, people around the tattoo shop growing up, you know, I mean, it's one of the most commonly, if not the most commonly used substance in you know, you see on TV, you know, watching football. I remember when I was first getting sober, I, I counted 32 uh, beer commercials during one football game. You know, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd sit there and count them because, you know, I was in a Cherokee Hospital detox, had nothing going on. So and it was just like beer, liquor, beer, liquor. So... Man, that's got to be hard too, you know, and especially sitting in detox. Um, and these ain't just like, it ain't like a commercial, you know, where you just see a beer for like a split second on the screen, you know, like these beer companies, they have a lot of money. So they're, they're running like a, a minute ad, you know, with a, with a whole story behind it. Um, do you, uh, do you remember when you first drank? How old were you? I mean, the first time I ever had a sip of alcohol, I was probably like two or three. Uh, 
it's one of my first memories I really actually have is <laughs> uh, sneaking and like kind of grabbing it, you know, uh, as a kid, you like sneaking, you just grab things. I grabbed it and took a sip. And I remember uh, it didn't taste bad to me. <laughs> and then uh, the first time I started like drinking to get drunk, I was probably like 12. Do you, uh, when, when you were drinking to get drunk, was you, had you, was you still sneaking? Uh, was you by yourself? Was you with some friends? I was with uh, friends, you know, like um, one of my friends at the time, their parents uh, would get pretty, pretty wasted. And when they wouldn't be paying attention, you know, we'd steal a beer or two. And at that time, like a beer or two, they would get me there, you know. I wouldn't know uh, what being drunk, drunk was until later in life. But, you know, I just, we didn't have nothing going on. Uh, Started getting into like, what is it, the gangster mentality? So, you know, you see it in the movies and on TV, and you're like, yeah, well, I want to do that. My favorite rapper does that. So just started doing it like that. And it wasn't until high school when I really started drinking. Was you uh, was you drinking at this point? Was you drinking just like when you when it was available to you, or was you trying to drink all the time trying to make it available to yourself was you drinking at parties or how how is this transpiring so i mean when i was 12 like i started smoking weed when i was 12 too so i mainly just smoked weed up until 16 so it was like i kind of liked the feeling of getting stoned and having a beer like that cross buzz i started liking that um <laughs> so you know it was just with friends but when i was 16 and i uh, ended up going to Slane County High School. I started making friends with some people that would uh, sneak alcohol to school. They have liquor, moonshine, and that's when I'd start drinking uh, early in the morning on the way to school, start having like a shot or two, and then on the way back from school, be sitting on back of bus taking shots. I think uh, I didn't go to Slane County, but I remember um, – I remember when people started sneaking alcohol to school. It's, it's whenever uh, when the water bottle craze hit. I don't know if that hit y'all down there in Swain County, but like every kid like started bringing water bottles to school, and that's what they would. Uh, for me, that's where I would see the alcohol. People put either like Everclear or vodka or, or clear moonshine in a water bottle and bring it to school. You know. Oh yeah, no, that's. Same thing, you know, like I went to all three schools, Cherokee Slane and Smoky Mountain. Uh it was a water bottle craze, uh especially with moonshine, but <laughs> they started realizing that the higher proof of the moonshine and every clear start eating through the water bottle, so they just started yeah. sneaking in jars. They had the potency, couldn't even sneak it in there no more. Uh, it's it's uh I also wanted to say something about you saying, like, the gangster mentality. I know that a lot of old-school people, like, they're probably thinking to themselves, you know, like, you know, that's just a young people problem with the hip-hop and the rappers and whatnot. But I will say this, like, back in, like, the 50s and 60s, like, there was, like, a gangster mentality that wasn't hip-hop, that wasn't rap music. It was, like, the, the greaser movement or, like, the... 
the kids that would wear the leather and the boots and that would roll up the cigarettes in the sleeves, you know what I mean? And I've seen a lot of older people, like, be caught up in that. They're still, you know, in that mentality. So I just wanted to say that, um, that it's it's always been that. It may not be the gangster mentality, per se, but maybe just the bad boy persona. You know what I mean? Like Fonzie, I guess. I don't know if you're familiar with Fonzie. Um but oh yeah absolutely like the outsiders and yes sir yes sir all that but you know also i noticed uh a lot of uh older people around here they say you know it is the hip-hop this and that but then they'll be all into like uh the mcs and biker stuff and it's like that's that's the same thing just a different yeah yeah i agree with that 100 percent, man and uh I know in my forays out, because I'm not trying to say that one's any better than the other, but that it's, I'm just trying to like put together that it's like the same thing, basically, just like you said. Um, when you were going to these different schools, was it because, uh, was it because you were moving or were you getting in trouble at school or what, what was happening there? Well, uh, I left Cherokee in the sixth grade, uh, because, you know, at the time, the uh, education standards at Cherokee really wasn't up to par with uh, how it is now. So when I left Cherokee and went to Smoky Mountain, I was making, like, A's and all that at Cherokee, and it dipped hardcore when I got to Smoky Mountain because I wasn't learning. I hadn't learned what they already learned, you know. So then when I got there, you know, I started a. Uh, Start getting in trouble because I won't do my grades. I started developing more of a. I, I suffered from bipolar disorder, so I started developing more of the. Uh, what would you say the uh, the symptoms of it? So I started having a, a lot of behavioral issues. I got uh, basically kicked out of Smoky Mountain High School. Um, for uh, trying to do like. I was hanging out with a certain group of people that they considered a gang and we were doing dumb stuff. And the principal at the time said this in front of my mom. He said, uh, wouldn't you want to go back to Cherokee and be with your own kind? So, so she pulled me out of there and she didn't want me to go to Cherokee because she was like, well, you're just, you know, you'll just. be all resy and rugged so i was you only got one more chance i'll send you to swain so that's how i ended up but swain it carried over there ended up dropping out so um a reason i asked that it wasn't nothing to do with your alcohol though right you wasn't getting in trouble that early with alcohol it was just other stuff no, it was uh, it was just other stuff. It was the uh, like I said, un- uh, bipolar disorder, uh, where they had put me on a certain medication at the time. It made me sleep all the time, and I just get far behind on grades. Yeah. Um. So we're at Swain now. We're sixteen. Uh, bipolar disorder was that hard to navigate? Yeah, I mean, it still is a struggle. I have to take my medicine, and I I, uh, I go to Annaliski for, you know, therapy every once in a while. Um, I didn't want to take the medicine because, like I said, it made me sleepy. Uh, I felt zombified, so all of a sudden I noticed when I drank alcohol, 
that severe anxiety that I would have to where I couldn't even go into food line or Walmart or a gas station. Once I started drinking, that disappeared. And, you know, I, I was very uh, self-conscious. I didn't have a, a lot of confidence at all. But I noticed that when I was drinking, I didn't feel bad about myself. I, I wasn't nervous around people. So that's when I started really using alcohol at 16 to combat and, like, self-medicate. Yeah. How did that um, – I know a lot of times when you do take medicines like that um, for uh, mental health or anything of the sort, a lot of times they tell you not to mix your medications with alcohol. Um, did you ever have any experiences where where they mixed, or did oh, you yeah. use alcohol instead of the medicine? Oh yeah, well, I mean at first when I uh, at first when I really started drinking, drinking, I was taking my medicine and I noticed if I drank one beer on this medicine, it felt like three. So I was like, oh, this is this is cool. <laughs> yeah, it's like the best of both worlds, huh? <laughs> yeah, so I would drink, you know, maybe a six-pack, and then all of a sudden I'm, like, waking up in the bathroom, and there's, like, throw up everywhere, and, you know, I I start saying things to people I don't remember, just straight up blacking out, and uh, my medicine used to get stolen at parties because people were figuring out if you took one and drank on it, it made it so much more potent. Yeah. So then, you know, I'd go to a party, end up having all my medicine gone, and then all of a sudden, if you stop taking this medicine, it just, like, bottoms you out fast, and it can make you go up and down, up and down mentally. So once that happened a couple times, I just said I wasn't going to take it no more, and I just started drinking. You subbed it out with alcohol, huh? Alcohol and weed. And anything that came with it, I understand that, man. When you when you said that, man, I was in my mind. I was having flashbacks to you know. Um, the worst part about a blackout is for me was uh, whenever you know it's the next day. Say you did wake up, you're, you're cleaning up the throw up off yourself. You're trying to clean up the bathroom because you don't know whose bathroom it is, and then you know you go out and you see the first person, and they're like, dude. Do you know what you were doing last night? And for me, I'd always be like, no, and please don't tell me. You know what I mean? Like, if I wasn't wasn't saving the world, you know, don't tell me about it, please. You know, and then the only thing worse than that moment is when when you come out of the bathroom and you're in a jail or something, you know, and then the person that gets to tell you about how you were acting the night before is the jailer. You know, that that is the absolute worst, you know. I've had people, I've, I've woke up and, you know, the jailer's like laughing, you know, like laughing about to cry, fall out of their chair, like, dude, do you know what you were doing last night? And I'm like, oh my Jesus. Yeah, I can tell by where I'm at that it wasn't good, but, you know, I just, um, man, I, I was with you in that moment right there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I was the same way. I, if I, when I black out, I don't want to know. I don't. <laughs> Like if it if I wasn't the life of the party, I wasn't being nice and having fun. Don't tell me. Like I think yeah. the worst worst for me is uh, 
when I would black out and come to and I look at my phone and I see there's like 17 text messages and five missed calls and the texts are starting with what is wrong with you or F you and F this. Like, yeah. And I'm like, dang. Man, <laughs> that I, wasn't me. <laughs> for real though, it, it, it's so cliche and it sounds like a cop out, you know, but I tell these people, I tell people all the time, you know, it's, it's not, it's the drugs, it's the alcohol, you know, and then although that don't make it right, because it won't be right for somebody to lash out. It's never right when people lash out at you because they're hurting or they're drunk or they're high, you know. But when you realize that it's not them, it makes it a little bit easier to brush it off, you know. But it's crazy and ironic in the fact that it almost takes you going through being that person that was lashing out to understand that lashing out is not that person, you know. Um so we're partying, we're 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 stopping taking our medicine, we're self medicating, uh, we're drinking and then while drunk doing all kinds of other stuff. How how long does this continue? Oh man, that really continues up until I got sober by going to con down there in Robinsville when I was twenty seven. You know, uh I started getting sneakier with it because uh, you know, after I started drinking and drinking I start noticing some health changes. You know, I would uh when I would throw up, it used to be just, you know, normal, whatever. Then all of a sudden I start seeing a little bit of blood in it. I go to the bathroom the other way and see a little bit of blood in it. I started developing these uh I would think I was having a heart attack. It'd be like these really sharp pains in my chest. But yeah. they would go away after like a couple minutes or if I kept making myself burp. So I was like, well, it's got to be gas. It can't be whatever. And then, uh, let's see, I was probably like 21 and I got, I think it's probably alcohol poisoning is what they called it. But I was with someone and I, uh, I fell out of the car and they said I started having a seizure. And, uh, I don't remember any of it. I come to, in the hospital at Cherokee and you know they're saying like oh we had to punch your stomach and do you have anyone you want us to call and I'm like no don't call anybody you know and then they said well uh you know we we did a a drug test on you and there's cocaine in your system and I'm like I don't I don't do cocaine I don't <laughs> you know and they're like well I, obviously you did so you know uh that's when they first when I first went to detox, so they're like, you know, you're really bad on alcohol. Would you like to just detox? And I was like, sure, whatever, I'll do that. I think I made it like two days before I checked myself out. So I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm sober. You know, they hydrated me with those banana bags. Like, I feel great. You know, I was like, I just won't do Coke again. Oh, I guess I don't remember doing it, but whatever. just won't do it again. Yeah. And, uh, Went and got drunk, so, <laughs> you know. And then I was starting to get a handle on it in my head. You know, I was like, well, I'll just drink. I'll go out to eat. I'll have a couple of beers, whatever. Just won't buy it. This is, uh, at this time, I'm living on my own. And uh, every time I'd get sober, I think I was making it 90 days. About every time I was going to AA uh, one time and, 
you know, really trying to work a program. And when I hit 90, I was like, man, I ain't never been sober this far. I, I, sh- I deserve a treat. I'm going to drink a beer. And then I spiraled back out of it. So did you, when you, uh, was your, was your drink a choice of liquor or beer or just anything? It, uh, it started off with, uh, beer. Then I moved to, uh, liquor and my drink of choice at the time was, uh, Hennessy or Cavassier. Yeah. And I was like, I'm classy. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm classy, and I mean, people remember me. They would see me with a big old McDonald's cup, and that's because I had Henny and Coke in it at all times. Always drinking Henny and Coke out of McDonald's cup, you know. And my family would be like, "You smell like liquor." I'm like, "Oh well, you know, whatever." And they even thought, "Whatever, whatever." At the time, they're like, "You know, you're just 21. You just turned 21. It's a." Whatever, you'll grow out of it, you'll grow up. I didn't though. And then uh just drinking like this, I started remembering traumatic events that happened to me throughout my life and childhood that I didn't want to remember. So I started drinking more to try to forget those. You know? And uh Yeah. I can't forget them. It's uh it's a, like a twisted irony there that you were drinking to forget them, but then you have, I don't want to say moments of clarity because I know what you're talking about. And obviously there weren't moments of clarity, not for me anyways, because I would be drunk as a skunk, you know. Sometimes I'd be really drunk, like almost to the point of where I felt like I was drinking and I wasn't getting drunk anymore. You know what I mean? And yeah. In those moments, I'd be sitting there like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I'm drinking this shit. I don't even like to drink. I don't, I mean, let me let me rephrase that. Um, you said something earlier that resonated with me because that's the way that I was. You said, I was drinking to get drunk. Me, I never drank for the taste. Now, I'll tell you, I did like Hennessy and Coke. I also like Hennessy and Sprite. There were drinks that I could make that didn't taste as bad as other stuff, but it all tasted like shit to me. You know what I mean? So I'd be oh, yeah. sitting there in that moment like, man, I'm drinking this beer that I don't even fucking like. Um, and I'm not even getting drunk. And I'd be thinking of, you know, just like what you're saying, uh, traumatic events, events that, you know, Sometimes it wouldn't even be, it wouldn't be a new event to me. It would just be me thinking about a situation and looking at it from a different perspective. Like, well, maybe it was because of this, you know, and, uh, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, did, uh, did working on those issues outside of drinking help you with your sobriety? Oh, yeah, uh, 100%. I mean, I don't ever try to tell people, you know, what to do or how to find a way to keep them sober. I only express what I did. And I can say right now, if I never went to uh, con, I never gained the tools to learn how to deal with my uh, trauma, generational trauma, the hate and resentment in my heart for certain people and actions. And I didn't learn how to, basically for me, it was to accept that the stuff happened, accept that there's nothing I can do to change it, and just know that 
me holding on to it and hating these people or things wasn't doing nothing to them. You know, it's like drinking poison and and saying, I'm going to drink this poison because I want it to kill you. It's not going to do nothing to them, but it's going to kill you, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, exactly I, learned there, I learned there that. I learned that uh, I have to take medicine for my uh, issues, uh, my mental issues, because I can't. I cannot go without it. Uh, I hate to say it that way. It's uh, I'm so, how would I say it? My imbalance is so off that I just can't function without help and therapy. And, you know, that's not for everybody, but it's for it could help a lot of people, you know. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what I learned from Khan was the uh, – what the tools to use it and to uh I had a higher power besides God that I placed up above myself and that's my family. So I don't want to hurt my family. I don't want uh my mom to see me in ICU again, you know, drinking's put me in ICU three separate times. And uh just I just can remember the pain in my little sisters voice when I had promised her I wasn't going to drink no more and I relapsed and she seemed me drunk it, like it it hurt her so bad that I don't ever want her to uh, see, be that way again you know I'm just saying I don't want my brother to die and crying like that broke me at the time so well um, uh, two things I want to say to you on that I wanted to say first and foremost that I'm I'm glad that you found your balance and not only that, but a lot of people, I feel like they could find their balance, but they won't put their pride to the side to say that, Hey, this is how I function. You know, how you, how you just said that my balance is so off that I need therapy and medication to be able to function properly. There's nothing wrong with that, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you found that because a lot of people, I feel like myself included up until recently, I was stuck in that cycle of knowing what I needed to do, but being too ashamed to admit it, not only to myself, but then to the people that could help me facilitate that change. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know, man, I'm, I'm, that's good for your sister. I was just getting ready to ask you about that. You said three ICU things. Um, would you say that was your rock bottom moments is your ICU visits or... Uh, I'd say that it was getting there because, I mean, for the first two, I just checked myself out. Like, I would just be like, I'm I'm done. You know, my my last ICU visit was what led to me uh, getting getting on the track that I needed to be. You know, I say things happen for a reason. Like, this was one of the, the domino effects that uh, led me to sobriety was uh I ended up in ICU at uh Silva. I told them don't call my mom. Well, all I had on my uh, emergency contact at the time was my mom. Yeah. So they didn't listen to me. You know, I, I evidently I don't know if they could get in trouble for that or not, whatever, you know, but they called her, she showed up, she's not crying like she usually is, she's mad. You know, I, I get mad I'm so messed up on 
whatever the whatever the drugs they give you in there like keep you calm or whatever. But I just got angry, you know. I said, I'm, I'm checking out. I'm leaving. I left and I went to a friend's house and I started drinking his beer. And then I ended up at another friend's house and my friend at that time, whose house I ended up at last, calls my mom. <laughs> <laughs> And she calls uh, the, the police, and they come up and IVC me. I, they, I don't know how they IVC me. I thought it's supposed to be you're a threat to yourself or others, but I guess checking yourself out and actively hurting yourself or whatever, you know. And uh, the, uh, the doctors up there kept me in one of the rooms in the ER for three days. No TV, no nothing. And I I was going crazy in that room. I swear I was. And I had a, I won't say it's a spiritual experience, but it scared the crap out of me. It, I was like, I could not move. And the room got real dark and it felt like something was sitting on my chest. And after that, I said I would go to detox and I wanted to go to rehab. And, uh, you know, ended up at con and, started uh building up from there hey man that's uh that's what's up man um i recognize too i also been ivc by my mom um but you know i also wanted to say this i don't know your mom but and i know in that moment uh I can't speak for you, but for me, whenever they came, they're like, yeah, you're a threat to yourself or others, da, da, da. I'm like, I'm so fucking pissed, Kane. Like, man, I was so mad at my mom. I don't know if I called her every name in the book, but I came close to it as they're taking me away, you know. Um, they caught me in a moment, though, where I wasn't high, so <clears throat> I was able to, like, talk my way out of it, you know, within a couple hours or a day or so instead of having to stay the whole 72 hours. But... I say all that to say this, that for our moms to to be able to involuntary commit your only kid, you know, I know you can probably respect it more now that you're a parent, but man, that's a, that's coming from a place of love that, that man, um, I, I wish I could, I wish, I hope that I have if it ever comes a time for it. That not that I ever wish addiction on my kid or your kid or anything, but if there ever comes a moment in time, I hope that I'm able to show the same kind of love and strength that my mom did, that your mom did, because you know that's not what they wanted to do. You know what I mean? No, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm internally grateful that she did that. Honestly, you know, um, the time she's had done that to me before, you know, of course, I called her every name in the book, too. Uh, those are some of the things I regret so much is the names I called her and the things I wished upon her just because I was being what I would say forced to get help and you know it's if she didn't I wouldn't be here you know I would everything be there everything happens for a reason man everything happens for a reason I love when people say that because well, especially now in the context that you said it with what you're sharing with me, because you're not sharing just highlight real moments. You know, it's easy for somebody to say everything happens for a reason when everything's going good. But whenever you can look back on like the, the sad moments, the tragic moments, the, 
the valleys in your life and not the mountaintops and say that, then I feel like you're, you're really at a place where, where you should be, you know? Um, I want to ask you one thing before we moved on. Um, a lot of people don't talk about this. Was it the, was it the withdrawals that helped that, uh, contribute to you checking out of detox those few times or, what what was it like withdrawing from alcohol? I've only withdrawn from I don't know if I have like sober, you know what I mean? Because anytime I wasn't drinking, I had weed, I had Xanax, I had whatever to help me, you know, not even think about not drinking. So what are the withdrawals from alcohol like when you're just going to detox? Uh well I'm mean, I've withdrawed off alcohol in detox, I withdrawed off uh not in there. Um, uh, the worst withdrawals I had was actually in detox. Uh, they give you, I think it's Liberdom, Liberdom, something like that. It's a withdrawal drug, but benzos are supposed to be used to combat withdrawals of alcohol. Um, but I heard, uh, my friends that had passed away, I heard them talking to me. Like they were literally right, right in the room with me talking to me. Uh, I saw spiders that only I was seeing, evidently, crawling all over the walls and on me. Uh, and then, like I said, I didn't know if it was a spiritual experience or what, but that black shadow kept coming in my room and sitting in the corner. And uh, I wouldn't be able to move, and it felt like it would crawl up on my chest, and I couldn't breathe. And, you know, I, I had seizures uh, outside of hospital before from a uh, lack of alcohol so i checked myself into detox willingly before just to sober up enough get off of it enough so that i could start back again and not let it get to that point but it always ended up back at that point yeah kind of like a like a reset button almost yeah i was like well this time i'll drink normal i'll drink like a normal person yeah um so we this last experience led you to detox, led you to con. Um what con will to you for uh for the listeners who don't know is our residential treatment program for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. It's in uh Robbinsville, North Carolina. I myself am a graduate of Con and man, I just wanna <clears throat> give a shout out to all those people down there, to the people who made it happen first and foremost, uh, I don't know who was in charge of getting that going, but that's, man, it's a godsend to have such a nice facility available to us at no cost and to have the people that are working there. Um, I honestly don't know if I'm like legally allowed to say their name, so I'm not going to, but there's some amazing individuals who work there who have been through what man Kane have been through and man, they, they they are a light in the dark for a lot of people and I'm I'm really thankful for that place. <clears throat> um so con was the, that that last detox was the turning point. What what's happened after that? What's what's helped you stay on track besides con and your family? Is there anything else that you do? Do you go to church? Do you lift weights? Do you have hobbies or, or what is it that helps keep you uh in your recovery journey? All right, so uh, I'll get to that, but I'm just going to say this real quick. Like, I went to con, you know, I was doing the program, and then uh, I got sick. I had a what's called interception. It's where the uh, 
my lower intestine, part of it collapsed in on itself like a telescope. So I didn't get to graduate, Con. I had <laughs> I had to get uh, EMSed out and have surgery, right? So, you know, uh, I think this is one of the biggest points for me is when I was, I just got my surgery, you know, I'm in there for a few days, and they're like, we're going to check you out. Here's a prescription for 60 uh, Percocets. And I'm like, y'all know I just got out. I, was, I just came from rehab, right? And they're like, yeah, but it says alcohol. I said, I just can't take them. I said, I'm not gonna pick the script if I don't want them. So I didn't. I didn't get those. You know, I come back and I heal up at my mom's house, and my wife, uh, me and her had been talking on Facebook and stuff. She comes out from Oklahoma, picks me up, and takes me back to Oklahoma with her. So. That's one of the big things that kept me sober was a change of scenery. And I lived in Oklahoma for a year. And um, within a few months of us being together out there, she ends up getting pregnant with my son, Cairo, you know, and uh, we had a, we had a baby. I had a, she had her son, my son, Raiden too. And, uh, you know, I just started really focusing in on taking care of these kids, taking care of my wife. And, uh, I don't, I don't go to church, but I am, uh, spiritual. I am, uh, I practice church my own way, which I believe is anywhere, really, to me. Um, I need to get into working out, but I'm just kind of enjoying being dad bod right now. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that, man. Uh, but no, I started my hobbies though. I started, uh, it's a, I wouldn't say it's an official business, but it's called Big Daddy Kane Sports Memorabilia. So I just, uh, get sports memorabilia and, uh, do card breaks and stuff like that. So focusing really heavy on sports and, uh, and my job, I work at, uh, the casino. I got a really good job at the casino that I just focus all my energy into on the job, on my family, on the, sports memorabilia and you know between these three i don't got no time to be fooling off and drinking i honestly i used to think about drinking nonstop when i first got sober and now that i'm a little over three years sober i haven't i don't have that obsessive compulsion of thought about drinking anymore you know yeah even when watching football games even to see that exactly <laughs> it used to be a trigger but now i just be like okay and working at the casino and you see all these tourists and locals get real wasted up there at night i'm just like you <laughs> for like, real i can't believe i used to do that i tell people that all the time kane I'm, I'm glad you said that man every time like i'm in a I went to Halloween Horror Nights down here at Universal Studios uh, back in October, and it's an awesome thing. But we were on, like, this exclusive tour with our friends, and um, they drink. And I'm not going to ask anybody to, like, change their lifestyle up for me or walk on eggshells for me, you know what I mean? Because for me, when people, like, try to avoid my triggers or they try to do that, it makes it that much worse when I actually encounter a real trigger. You know what I mean? So I was okay with them drinking. I told them, they were like, you're okay with that? I was like, yeah, just give me a water, you know. And every time they could give me a drink, you know, they were like, 
I'm going to get you a water. I'm going to get you a water. And then after like the fifth bar, they were like, hey, bro, them waters are $12. <laughs> I was like, it's all right. <laughs> you ain't got to get me nothing. But every time I'm in a situation like that, just like you said, I see someone who had too much to drink, and it reminds me of why I don't. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially up there at the casino uh, in the cleaning department when you got to clean the clean it up. <laughs> you know what happened. You know what I mean? There ain't no lying about it. You can't say you know somebody was drunk. <laughs> like, I um, can't even stand the smell of it no more. <laughs> what part of Oklahoma did you live in? Uh, it was in uh, Hinton, Oklahoma, about an hour west of OKC. Uh, okay. My wife, she's part of the Caddo Nation, so like okay. they're uh, un- it's like an unofficial Reds, I guess, because you know Oklahoma is just one big Reds, basically. Yeah. So. Uh, the reason I ask you, which is even more crazy, but not really crazy, because you're my first cousin. I also, I went to high school in Oklahoma at Sequoia, and I got two kids out there that are part of the Katua Nation. Uh, out in Tahlequah. That's why I was asking you about Oklahoma, man. Um, also, for me, I also I live in Florida now. Um, my last incarceration, uh, I decided that I wasn't. I was tired of not only being locked up, but you know, um, the reason I asked you about the withdrawals of alcohol is because I was addicted to fentanyl, heroin, pretty much any drug. Um, but this last time, the withdrawals that I felt now holding cell from the fentanyl, man, like, that is what I remind myself of any time. If I have an intrusive thought, if if I'm triggered, I'm like, man, remember that, remember throwing up in that cell. Remember not being able to catch your breath because you couldn't stop throwing up, you know. Um, uh, that That's what helps keep me on the right track is remembering those withdrawals, you know. But, um the day I got out, I left. I knew I didn't want to feel like that no more. I left. The change of scenery, man, it, it, it's done wonders for me. And I yeah, I know it don't work for everybody. And I commend people who are able to go right back to Cherokee or go right back to where they're from and be okay, man. I, I wish I could be like that. Uh, soon enough, though, I, I want to come home and help other, help with the problem I contributed so much to, which is, you know, addiction and drugs. So, um, that's what's up, Kane. Uh, if you could go back in time and to, to speak to the Kane and the height of his drinking, what would you say to him? I'd probably tell him that, uh, the path you're headed down, it's going to end in death. I mean, you know, when you start hemorrhaging from your stomach and you're throwing up jellyfish, that's what I call them, you know, blood clots. It's, it's not, but you know, now I think about it, that cane at that time, he wanted to listen to the cane now because yeah. I remember telling myself then that I'm going to drink myself to death and I set out and that's what I tried to do right up at the end. I would just drink and drink and drink and say, I'm going to drink till I die because I want to die. But I'm too, what would I said? I'm too, uh, too much of a wussy to do it, uh, an immediate way, you know? Yeah. To, to pull a trigger. Yeah. 
I, I feel you on that, man. I, uh, on some of my binges, I, it wasn't that I set out to die, like, but I had already made my mind up that if I did die, I was okay with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, and I, I feel that 100%. I don't know if the young Jack would, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't listen. He probably would try to fight me, you know, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, if, if there's someone listening right now that struggles with addiction to anything, to alcoholism, do you have any advice for them? Yeah. Uh, my advice to them would be just kind of sit back and think, what do you want out of life? Is this really the life you want? Because no matter who tells you to get sober, if you're doing it for anybody other than yourself, it's not going to work. You have to think about how many times are you going to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. And uh, once you come to the conclusion that it's something that you want, you have to put your pride and your ego aside and accept the help for which uh, can be offered to you. You know, if you're enrolled, use our resources that we're lucky to have. We have a great hospital. We have great health workers up there. You know, Annalise Ski and Con, use them. And, uh, you know, if you can't, if you feel like it's going to be too much of a trigger for you to stay in Cherokee, then accept the resources and go to a facility in New York or Memphis. I know there's one in Memphis. You know, if you don't think you can be on your own for a year without too much triggers, use the resources and live in a men's home for a year. Just do what you got to do as long as it's what you want. And I know a lot of people are like, no, you're supposed to tell them get sober no matter what. Like, if it's not something you want, it's not going to happen. At least use harm reduction techniques if you're not, you know, because I'm big on harm reduction. If you're going to not do it, be at least be safe about it, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I support the harm reduction model myself. I actually, I, I support all models of recovery, you know, um, but I'm glad you said that, man. That was that's probably the I ain't gonna lie to you. No offense to my other guests, but that was probably the best piece of advice that I've gotten from someone. You know, just covering all topics about using the help, getting away if you need to. You know, because not everybody's journey everybody's journey is different. I was gonna say not everybody's journey is the same, but even more so than that, everybody's journey is different. You know, and what works for you might not work for me, and vice versa. Um, we have some people though that came that listen to this show and attempts to help someone they know that's struggling and they themselves aren't struggling with alcoholism or addiction but maybe their friend is maybe their their son is their daughter is maybe it's their spouse uh, do you have any advice for those people that are listening and dealing with someone who's struggling listen to them Listen to what person struggling is telling you, whether it be through their verbal actions or their actual actions, because uh, addiction is rooted in trauma. You know, I mean, it, a lot of it is at least, you know, what are they hiding? What are they running from? Uh, even 
if it's a parent and their kid is struggling, they have to self-reflect too and been like, you know, did I do something or did I, did something happen on my watch that could have contributed, been a contributing factor to what's going on? And don't, don't hesitate to use the resources either. You know, if they're actively talking about hurting themselves or actively hurting themselves, go ahead and use that IVC. At least buy them 72 hours, you know, because uh, as a parent, if one of my boys were doing that, I wouldn't hesitate to have them IVC so that I could have 72 hours to formulate a plan to try to save them. Because as parents, that's our job is to protect our children. Shoot, as a tribe, it's our job to protect each other. So, you know, it doesn't even got to be your kid. Just try to save them as much as you can. But, you know, don't don't overstep either if it's not your uh, family and stuff because you have to be prepared for the fact that when you use these resources, there's going to be some resentment at the time for it. You're going to be called every name in the book. You might even be physically attacked over it. But it just comes down to is that what you want to do, you know? So basically what I'm saying is just don't give up. Be there for them no matter what's going on and love them because love always overcomes hate. Love always overcomes the dark. Hey, that's what's up, Kane. I, I'm just I'm just here listening, man. It's almost like it's your podcast, bro. I, I, I like the the advice that you give just because it's real, it's raw, you know, it's it's coming from a place of love, just like you said. I like really like what you said about about the uh, our reservation and our tribe and our community and about how it don't have to be your blood relative, you know, cause we all, we're all connected. And man, I always go back to this quote. I don't know if you ever watched the show. You, you lived in Oklahoma, so I'm sure I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you've watched reservation dogs. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the last, one of the last episodes, man, they had a serious moment whenever, uh, Willie Jack visits the lady in prison and she's like, when you break the community, you break the individual. Man, that's, and so what I got out of that was when you heal the community, when you heal the individual, you heal the community. When you heal the community, you heal the individual. It's all connected, you know, so I'm, I, I was glad to hear you say that. Um, Absolutely. Do you have anything else you would like to add to, to anybody listening? Just, uh, you know, it's it's possible. Recovery is possible. You just got to want it yourself. You know, if anybody wants to reach out to me as well, I'm always available. Let me rephrase that. I do have a wife, kids, and a job. I will get back <laughs> to you, though, <laughs> be it through Facebook or whatever. You know, um, shout out to uh, Natives for Recovery. Shout out to Recovery Gang. You know, I see, like, uh, these youngins around here gangbanging and stuff. I'm like, why don't you come join Recovery Gang where we're going to uplift a positive message. And, you know, some people might think it's corny or whatever, but I'd rather be corny than cool, I guess. I don't know. It's just, you know, reach out because if you're suffering in silence, it's going to hurt. But if you reach out, put your uh, emotions to the side and be vulnerable – 
I guarantee you you're, you'll get something done for you. For sure. That's it, man. Um, I think that's a barrier a lot of people have um, is putting their pride to the side. And then even if they're able to put their pride to the side, being able to be vulnerable, you know, um, it, it takes a lot of strength and courage to be vulnerable, which is kind of ironic, you know, because, you know, when you think of vulnerable, you think of something that's weak or less than or inferior, but that's not it. <clears throat> you got to be vulnerable enough to show off your scars, to bear your skeletons, to show your diary entries, you know, um, and until you're able to honest, be honest with yourself and look at the role that you might have played in your trauma, you know, whether that be active stuff or even just, you know, contributing to contributing to your own trauma by not reaching out for help, you know, that, that, that still contributes to it by letting it stew and fester, you know, like a, it's like a cut on your arm, you know, if you don't get it taken care of, it's just only going to get worse, 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 and worse. It's not just going to go away because you ignore it. Um, so I appreciate that, Kane. I want to, say thank you for sharing your story man i learned a lot from you um i also learned that me and you're very similar i i like that uh I, I find that in a lot of stories that as vast as the differences are the similarities are almost just alike you know and uh i just want to say thank you i know somebody i learned from this i got help from this and that's the goal of this show you know is this if i can just if we can help one person with these stories then that's our goal met. So thank you, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, allowing me to uh, speak and say my experience, you know, and uh, I just wish everybody have a happy life, you know, and I just want everybody to just be good, be happy, know what love is. So. Well, I appreciate it, Kane. Thank you. All right. Thank you.